Look there in James, if you will. The posture of our heart is key. Before we tackle love, we have to assess ourselves. And so we ended kind of on this calling out the Christians. I wanted us to really get to the bottom of our own heart. And, and we're, James diagnosis, whatever is in the way, whatever's compromising the way that we love other people, the way that we love perfectly. In James 4, verse 1, What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not your passions that are at war within you? You desire, you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot attain, so you fight and you quarrel. Okay, so he's, he's continuing to go on. Let's go down to verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and worn, mourn and weep, and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. And then verse 10 is the key. Please circle and underline that in your, in your Bible. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And then we paralleled James' words to the picture of, John, uh, of Jesus in John 17. You've got this in your notes. We paralleled James saying this, this posture of humility by Jesus humbling himself as God, saying, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you just keep them from the evil one. Okay, you see the parallel. Resist the devil, James is saying. Resist the devil. And Jesus saying, keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So here we see the community at large. Jesus is saying, I'm asking this humility, in humility, for my disciples, for the Christians, for the church age to come, not for their sake, not for their sake only, but for all the people who are watching them. And then remember the goal or the aim is that, verse 21 in John 17, that they may all be one, that they may all be one. So I'm just reminding you of the good nuggets in here so, so that we can ask the Lord to convict our hearts of any motive in our life, of any posture in our life that is not desiring to be one. So what I mean by that is, is there any friendship, is there any relationship from your past? And I'm talking about the ones who have hurt you deeply, and it was real hurt, evil maybe, sin in every way. Um, I'm asking you to think about that person that has never acknowledged your pain, that has never apologized for the way that they hurt you, that, that really has kind of moved on with their life as though it never happened. I want you to think about that person. Do you want to be one with that person? And if you don't, there is still a mark of pride resting in there. That sounds impossible, doesn't it? Of course it's impossible. It's impossible to think of a woman who was, I mean, I, I am a therapist. I see 27 clients a week. You think I don't see abuse, emotional and physical? 
You, you, you think I don't see severe anxiety and crippling depression and suicidal thoughts every single day in front of me? And do you know how difficult it is for me to sit there and not just want to get mad and angry and vengeance with a woman who is being beaten down and beaten down verbally by her husband day after day after day? And you think that I want to tell her that our ultimate prayer and goal is that you can be restored in your marriage to this man? It's, it's like knives going out of my mouth. Because it seems impossible. And from her shoes, it is impossible. And, and, and certainly from where I'm sitting, it seems impossible. And yet... I am asking you again, did God set us up for failure here? Did Jesus put something out there scripturally that he did not fully intend to take place? It was impossible that I had an affair on my husband for three years as a leader and staff member in the church without anybody saying anything for three years. And it was impossible that when I was packing my bags to leave because that's what I deserved, that my husband would forgive me and say, not only am I forgiving you, I'm taking ownership as a spiritual leader of this. I am taking ownership of this. I am taking responsibility for your own sinfulness, that it is my own sinfulness. And I have missed it as your husband. I missed it because I'm one with you. And if I miss this whole thing, that means that I had separated myself from you. It's impossible that my husband continued to pursue me. It is impossible that after I'd grown to love the affection and touch of a whole nother man, like love, that years of my husband's faithfulness and pursuit and commitment of me bought me back. And I thrill at his touch. Goosebumps, butterflies. 20 years of marriage, two kids in. I thrill at his touch. That's impossible. Will you pray for the one that you think is impossible in your life? Maybe that's your father. Maybe that's your mother. Will you pray for your heart, for your heart? Not theirs. You can pray for theirs too, but mainly, would you pray for your heart to be humbled? Because the cause the cause of us withdrawing from this perfect love, the cause of us not believing that God is actually able to do what he says will always be, will always be pride. That's it. That's the baseline. That's what James is teaching us in 4, 1 through 3. That Greek word of pride, it's hedone, where we get our English word hedonism. It means to please yourself. So whenever we are thinking about our comfort or our convenience or our control and that that is more important than the people around us, 
That's when we're defaulting to pride. And so Jesus is praying for our humility. And James is echoing by going, humility, humility, humble yourself before the Lord and just see what happens. Just see what happens. And I want you to know, like, your first inclination of what humility looks like, it, it can be somebody very meek and mild and, and shy. It can be. But it, it's, that's not really what the text the, the Hebrew and Greek translations of humility represent. In fact, the, as close as I can help you understand the biblical humility, here's a definition, supremely confident of my personal worth and trusting that God is taking care of all life circumstance. That is humility. I am supremely confident in my worth. How in the world am I going to flee from the enemy or resist the devil if I don't think I'm stronger? And I'm scared of very little if I know that I can do that. That is the humility that God is offering you. The opposite of your pride, the opposite of what we think we need, the opposite of what makes us comfortable. He's offering us a confidence of our personal worth and an absolute trust that he is actually taking care of everything. That nothing you have been through can, whoa, that does not make sense to my 18-year-old mind. That does not make sense to my 22-year-old self. Maybe 25, 26, I started to kind of wrestle with it. And then at 30, cancer. So, man, I'm 42 this week. And maybe I'm just now getting it. I don't know. To, to realize that nothing in my life has been amiss. <laughs> that every single person and relationship and where I lived and where I grew up in the neighborhood and my family, it was all. Could, God could have redirected course at any time and he chose not to. So, so then what? So then, he's saying, trust me. Trust me from <laughs> the eyes that see eternity. And what this all means, you, you won't know right now. But one day, it will all be good. It is all good. All right, so I want to just go through a few. I've given you, here's what I did. I wanted us to see the stark difference between someone uh, from a posture of pride and someone from a posture of humility. So what I did was I kind of combed through the Bible and I found passages that help us see this contrary piece, but then also used the James and the John parallel as well. And I'm just going to bring out a few for time's sake. I've given you kind of a chart there of just the ones that I came across. I'm sure this is not all of them. And my purpose in doing this, I wish I could say it was not to step on your toes, but that would be a lie. My purpose in doing this is mainly so that we see all the, the fine lines and the nooks and crannies of how this sinks in that we're not really, like when I think of pride, I think of big pride. And I'm trying to just kind of take it down a notch so that you can just see how it's running through all the little layers of your life so that we can be really mindful and really conscious and really aware 
because if I'm letting any of these, uh, this category that I'm going to go through on spiritual pride end, if I'm letting that sink into any of my life, I am missing the perfection of love. I am not loving anyone well. So we got to be aware of it. All right, so let me just go through a few. Uh, spiritually prideful people, for example. <laughs> Here's how I know this one, because this was me and can be me. Wants to confront to be in control. There's not an argument or a debate that I will pass up on. Some of y'all in here are breaking out in hives thinking about confrontation. But, but not me, man, I love it. I feed off the energy of debate. I feed off the energy of a good conversation. Let it get heated. I, I love to see a resolution. Or not. <laughs> I like reality TV for that reason. But, there, but my pride in that is that I, will, I have many times started an argument just so that I can maintain control of the situation and the relationship. But I cannot let all of you conflict avoiders off either. Because... Prideful people also will avoid conflict in order to be in control. We're both seeking the same thing. We're just handling it in different ways, right? But Ephesians 4 teaches us that a spiritually humble person confronts in season and out of necessity. Saying, and there's, here's Ephesians 4, but only such as good, such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Now, so I'm just asking you, if you just let every conversation filter through that clarity point in Ephesians, that is your check and balance for spiritual humility. I'm going to confront someone or go to someone only when it is good for building them up as it fits the occasion. Think about that. Just that little bitty nugget is powerful. Like, um, what would be an example? Well, if I don't know you, I'm not going to come up to you and tell you your business. Like if I have never, oh my goodness, this came to me. I will never forget. So I used to teach and travel and whatnot, and we had backstage and we'd be preparing. And um, I'll never forget. I was, I'd be like in a lineup with other speakers and teachers. And the weird thing is, and the underbelly of the, that Christian world is that you really don't ever your paths don't cross. So like someone quote Christian famous could be in the room next to me, but I would never meet them. They would get on stage, they would do their thing, and then their posse would pull them off. And I didn't have a posse. <laughs> it was me and Justin and my bag of almond M&Ms. And there we were. But I'll never forget how um, I, was, I was preparing my message. I was so nervous. It was when I was very, very new. And it was... Um, a very large group. I think it was like two, two or three thousand women, and it was the first time I'd ever spoken to that. So, and I was, I was in the room just crying. I could not get control of my emotions. I thought everything that I prepared was junk, and I was just like, "This is dumb. This is dumb. I can't do this. I can't do this." And, and there was a knock on my dressing room door, and it was one of the other speakers. And in my world, she would have been Christian famous. And I, I remember she came in and I was like, oh, hi, <laughs> you know, and I, I got it together and I, I didn't know anything about her except what I'd seen on social media. She certainly didn't know anything about me, but we'd spoken together at an event before and I had gone over time. 
I know y'all are shocked that I'd gone over time. I'd gone over time, and so I was really trying to get better about that, and I was beating myself up because I'd gone over time, and she was after me. And so she knocked on the door, and she came in, and she sat down real proper, and she said, so what are we going to do about you going over time? And I remember, I just lost it. I literally lost it. I mean, that girl, bless her heart, I was like, I don't know, what do I do? You know, but then I started getting mad and I started getting frustrated and so she left and then I was like fire coming out of my eyes and I was like, well, that wasn't cool. Now, I'm using that as an example of if you're not, if you don't know somebody's name, if you don't know their kids' names, if you don't know their birthdays, if you don't know what they're struggling with, if you've never had dinner in their home at their table, you probably should not be the one to call them on their stuff. So that's just, that's an in-season thing, all right? So as fits the occasion, that did not fit the occasion. I obviously haven't let that one go. <laughs> all right, quickly, I want to just call out a few more. Our spiritual pride, now listen. <laughs> this is not a thing for me, so it's really hard for me to talk about shyness, um, self-consciousness, meekness, tenderness. I'm so grateful for those of you who, who are. Uh, but I really want those of you who lean into that introvert category to just ask the Lord to strengthen you to not be so shy. I know that sounds crazy, but it's, it's not because you... You cannot get into deep conversations with people and in influencing people's lives if you are that shy, if you are scared to walk into a building socially. Now, I know I'm being hard, but this is the reality. That is pride. It doesn't present like it, but that is actually trying to stay in control by using a personality crutch to not engage the culture for the world of God. Now, how do I mess that up as an extrovert? I use it the, the wrong way too. I can come in and dominate the conversation and never be quiet and never shut up and let someone talk. I can come in and wanna be the center of attention because I like a good party. And my love language is sarcasm and self-deprecation, so I'm good at it. I grew up with it. So just watch all of those little fine lines and wrinkles in our personality just to check them with the Lord. Like, is this me using this, my personality, as an excuse in any way? Versus, remember that beautiful passage in James 4, am I in the humility, am I confident in my ability to resist the devil? <laughs> am I confident in my personal worth? Do I trust God in all of life? And am I responding in my manner and in my tone and in my posture? That bumps me down to another one there a little bit further down. Spiritually prideful people, according to Proverbs 26, we're unwilling to change our tone or our approach or our nonverbal to avoid using things like sarcasm or profanity or quarreling versus a spiritually humble person would seek to adapt or evolve to the listener through clear, kind, helpful, and in-season words. I've given you some scripture there. So this, is, this has helped me tremendously. We, just, we all get some freedom to know that you get to adapt. 
Um, this is where we have to be careful with personality tests and things like that because we don't want to put ourselves in a box that says this is just who I am. We want to make sure we're always stretching ourselves. And, and can I just say, <laughs> Christian, just smile. It, it, I can't tell you how many times I have looked around just in church or something and people look like their dog just died. I'm like, what is going on? When, when people walk up to you, smile. Greet them. Hug them. Be kind. Be gracious. Make your tone and your presentation welcome. Does it draw them in? Or are your arms like this and you're, you know, like, just be aware of your body. Be aware of your posture. Be willing to grow there. Be willing to stretch there. Am I cutting somebody out with the way that I'm presenting or with the way, the tone? Am I even saying hello? Speak to people. Speak to them. You don't have to know the right words to say. Hey, how are you is a great start. All right. I have to talk about this one for just a moment. Spiritually uh, prideful people lead with fixing. They address the behavior and not the heart. Have you ever been anyone's project person? It sucks. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't, don't, be, don't let somebody be your project person. It's the worst. Um, one of the worst and most hurtful days of my life. <laughs> was when I had a group of women who I thought were my friends sit me down and go in a circle and tell me what I had done wrong and what I needed to fix. And I realized that for two years, I thought we were just really good friends doing life together. And in that moment, I realized that I was the project. And it was one of the most painful days of my life. Because this whole time that I, I realized they'd been talking behind my back and they'd been trying to figure out what's wrong with me and what I needed to do. Don't ever, don't come across that way with anyone. We don't have to worry about fixing someone. Isn't that great news? Now, this is, this gets, that's just fine when I'm talking about like the women in this room. Oh yeah, everybody's great and lovely, but I'm, what, I'm talking about your husband. I'm talking about your children. Oh, that hurts. I'm talking about your mom or your dad. We don't, we don't get to fix them. However, in our humility, we can love them for who they are now and not who we want them to be. How about that? Let's just love them for who they are now. And how about build some trust? How about give someone a reason to want to even hear from us because they trust us because we're not always trying to tell them what they need to do differently or fix. Plus, we don't want them to be, we don't want them to become who we think they should become. We don't, we're very subjective. I don't want another, you know, shadow of me. I want somebody to be who God has made them to be. And if that comes through a totally different journey than I went on, hallelujah. Spiritually prideful people believe or presume that blank sin, you can put whatever you want there, but their sin, those people over there, their sin is the worst sin. Hmm? You ever thought that? I did. I remember watching 
um, being in my early 20s, and there was a woman who was in our church. This was a whole other town, a whole other church away, so y'all won't know any, anything uh, attached to this story, but um, she, word got out that she had had an affair, and she kept coming, I remember she kept coming to church, and she would sit on the back row alone, and she just looked awful. And I was in the choir, on the stage, in my robe, and my lapel, with my two big crosses there, singing my very Baptist songs. And I remember seeing her come in every Sunday, and you know what I remember thinking? How dare she? That's honest. That's really what I was thinking. My pride presumed that her adultery was the worst sin I could think of at that time and that she would presume to come back into the holy place of church. Don't ever say you would never do that. Ever. Because the moment you say that is the moment that you have just enough pride to do exactly that. And that's where I would find myself. And I would find myself on the back row. And I would be rocked radically into humility. A spiritually humble person does not believe that anyone's sin is the greatest sin. Instead, we, we know that all of our greatest sin is unbelief. Period. Our greatest sin is not believing God is capable of doing what he says. Period. And that is at the baseline of all of our prejudices and all of our biases and all of our, and all of our subjective reasoning. Why do I tell you all of this? And there's more there. Oh, goodness, just let it crush you. <laughs> Why do I tell you all of this? Well, this is number five in your notes. Because we cannot claim to love someone while simultaneously being indifferent toward them. We cannot claim to love someone if we are indifferent toward them and pride will make us indifferent. It will not, it will not just make us indifferent or apathetic to other people. This includes us. Pride makes us apathetic to our own flesh, our own sin. We start to justify and we start to compromise. Do you think I just cheated on my husband? Do you think I just woke up one morning and wanted to betray my, my wonderful husband of five years who had never done anything to give me any reason to do that? Just ruin my life? I just decided to do that? Or do you think it was small, tiny, tiny lies? Undetectable to most mortal radar, going on in my mind, spiraling thoughts, things I would think about, depression, sadness, isolation, small little behavioral adjustments that I would make, and small, tiny justifications of, well, this conversation is not that bad. This text is not that bad. I even remember wearing, in order to impress this other guy at church, I remember like getting dressed in the closet one morning before church and putting on skin tight jeans. And I knew in my gut that it was gonna attract him to me. And I, and I just said, oh, this is the trend, this is cute. 
Now that's a very small thing, but I'm just asking you to ask the Lord, where, where are we apathetic? Where are you indifferent to your own sin? I mean, look at the, if we're talking about the culture, can you see how the culture? They don't care. It's free for all. And I'm not asking, I'm not putting my stuff on y'all. I just want you to really, really ask the Lord, like, what are you wearing? Because all I see on Instagram is crop top, belly button. That's like the new okay thing. Like in the Christian celebrity world, it's, I'm like, what is happening? Where are we just now walking around showing our midriff and this is cool and we don't think this is affecting men and we don't think this is, we think this is, what, what, what are you doing? Like I'm asking you in every single thing of your life, how much time are you spending on TikTok? How much? Jane's like, none. <laughs> Jane, I actually believe you, Jane. I do. Everything that we've got going into our mind, from social media to what types of shows we're watching, what types of books we're reading, please may we not kid ourselves. We have to be honest with ourselves. We cannot be indifferent to this. Please don't avoid it because, listen, whatever we are avoiding in others, if you've got that person in mind right now that is the hardest person for you to approach, maybe it's someone like me. That's okay. <laughs> I've gotten that before. Too strong. Hmm. Whatever that person is, is it someone in an open, openly gay lifestyle? Is that difficult for you to engage that person? Is it someone of a different race? Someone with a past, someone who uh, uses a lot of profanity, like it hurts your ears. I want you to, I want us to ask the Lord to give us so much humility. <laughs> because the thing that we are avoiding in other people is actually what we are avoiding in ourselves. Because this is who Jesus hung out with. So, I mean, Jesus hung out with rough crowds. <laughs> the sexually immoral, the drunks, the adulterers. You know, and, he, and then he healed the sick, the victims, the orphans, the widows. And you know, the thing about that group of people is we're quick to have compassion and mercy on the victim, but that takes a lot of time and energy. So for, that is still an inconvenience to some of us. We're, we become apathetic even to the widows and the poor and the orphans because it takes a ton of a resource and energy to minister and care for their needs. All right, so please turn in your Bible to 1 John 4. How do we, how do, we do this? Oh my goodness, how do we do this? because I confess to you that I am apathetic in a million different ways that I don't even see or know yet. And I want you to, to know that I know that about myself and I'm working on it, I'm with you. So I want us to, to look at 1 John 4. We're gonna start in verse 16. 
Because remember, remember what we're trying to figure out here is can we have perfect love for our neighbor? Can we really have perfect love? How is love perfected in us? Okay, you ready? God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us. You got that? Underline that so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is so also are we in this world. Verse 18 is a big verse. Here we go. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. That's a big one. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he, for he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, who he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So look, this is a big, deep, rich passage. I wish I could just preach on this whole one thing all night long. It's so good. It is, it's the answer to all of our questions, by the way. And it needs to really be the, the underbelly of the way that we think about love and the way that we approach, because look at all the components that you have here. You have the way to have perfect love, to, to coexist in per perfection, so to speak, be perfect as I am perfect. You have the, the compromising component of fear and specifically a fear that comes from punishment. And then you have the byproduct or the behavior that would alert you that you've missed it, that you're moving into spiritual pride and out of spiritual humility, and that's not loving your brother. So now we've brought in this neighbor uh, loving community part, right? That's good. That's really rich. Now, here's what's very important. You can write this in your notes because I, I think it's really helpful. At the bottom of our spiritual pride, and indifference lies the deep-rooted fear of possible and impending punishment. Let me say that again. At the bottom of our spiritual pride and indifference lies a deep-rooted fear of possible impending punishment. What do I mean by that? I want you to think about any time in your life where you have literally been punished for being who you are. And maybe you were doing something just outright stupid and needed to be like a kid, you know. Maybe you punched a kid in the face or bit somebody when you were a kid. I was a biter, sorry. It's a whole thing. I've been to therapy, don't worry. And, and I would get spanked. I would go home and get spanked or time out or whatever, you know. So in that case, I needed that. I needed correction. That is not okay. Sidebar to bite people. Okay, but I want you just to think of, of something a little less, you know, complex than that, or less simplified, excuse me, more complex. Of when have you felt as though your honesty was used against you? weaponized, punished. 
can you put yourself there any, any time that maybe you feared rejection, any time that maybe you feared um, disappointing someone? This is what we are hearing will compromise our perfect love every time. It is not just, there's two ways to fear. You can fear, it's okay. You can fear. What was that verse, Proverbs, uh, that we wrote down in leader? 29? Yeah, 29, 25. Proverbs 25, 29. <laughs> Somewhere in 25. Somewhere in Proverbs 25. Yes, thank you. That's your verse right there for how to, what does fear look like? And it's really, really specific. And it, it basically just says in, in simple terms, you can either fear God or you can fear man, but you can't fear both at the same time. 29.25. Thank you. So that clears it up for us. This in 1 John is talking about a fear of man. Anything that fears punishment. So, so just think about any time where you feel like you're going to be punished for being your most honest self with anyone. Well, that will push us into a fear posture. And as a therapist, I mean, y'all know I geek out on this stuff because our, our whole body is designed to shut down in fear like this. Our threat response goes on, and when our threat response goes on, we cannot even get to the prefrontal cortex. And the prefrontal cortex is where our mind is. Literal mind. The mind of Christ is in that very mature part of our brain that's not even fully developed until we're 25, and that's where we have hope, and that's where we have reason and language, where we tell time, now you think about that. When you are in threat or in fear, that whole part of your brain blacks out. You can't tell time anymore. So what do you do? You revert to a time in your life when you experience something similar. That's called, that's, you'll hear a therapist, the inner child or the inner self will go back to that place that feels like they need to protect. You'll go into that default posture of fight, flight, or freeze. Suddenly you won't have words. It's hard for you to make feelings make sense because your language center just went black. So you can't, it's hard for you to call words or describe how you feel. Suddenly, your hope feels diminished, like this thing can never change. That is a threat response, a true threat response. And I just want you to know every time where it's coming from, the fear of punishment. Now, that's one thing that we can acknowledge with people, I think we could all say there's been times in our life where we have felt rejected, like we've disappointed, like fear of man. We all have those stories. But, but the bigger question and the more important question is, have you ever felt, felt this way about God? And, and what we're learning is we will not love others until we stop waiting for God to punish us. We will not love others until God is no longer... You see, God cannot be the policeman in the sky. He cannot be the grandfather waiting to lightning bolt you when you do something wrong. As long as you are relating to him that way, that is fear of punishment. He's going to punish you for your sin. And until you are free of thinking of God from that standpoint, you cannot love fully and truly. Isaiah 43:25 I I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake I will not remember your sins Hebrews 8:12 
for I will be merciful toward your sin, and I will remember your sins no more. (laughs) Okay, look. I want to put some clarity on this because I, I already know some of the tension you're having. Like, is that really, can that really happen? <laughs> what does that even mean? How does God even do this? How does he even look in my life? Because I, I'm going to be judged. I mean, we're going to be judged for what we do, what we don't do. I've got to stand before the Lord. You're right. Revelation 2012, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Now, I'm going to, I hope this is going to radically rock your world to think of this from a different perspective than maybe how you've been taught growing up or. You see, we have to take the whole scripture together. We can't piecemeal this thing out. So how does God hold us accountable and how does God remember our sins no more so that we're no longer in fear of punishment? How do those two things work together? Now I was thinking about this and, and praying about this. I immediately thought of what I do every single day. I, I, it is a thorn in my flesh that I have to do this in connection to actually counseling, but I have to chart notes. And my fellow therapist, Whitney's over here nodding her head because she knows it is the worst. Because you get behind and you have to write all of these notes. You have to write all of these notes for law, for HIPAA. You've got to document everything that you were said and any red flags you had. I have to keep all those things in the chart. Because if I have a teenager who is seeing me for suicidal thoughts and then they, God forbid, they do commit suicide, then I'm going to have to present all of those notes. Now, why am I keeping a record? Am I keeping a record to judge this client? Am I keeping a record to shame this client? I'm keeping a record so that I have evidence that I did everything in my power to help her. And what if we stand before God one day (laughs) and these heavenly records and these books are open and it's not there to shame or punish us, but to document everything he he did, all the power that he used to heal us, to save us, to redeem us. How about that? It's all the evidence, all the evidence over the course of your life that God has done everything in his power. Good thing I can talk loud. It's okay, Chris. I've just got a few minutes left. He's come after you every day. He's coming after you every single morning, whether you want to kick and scream about it or not. And he's keeping a record of all of that. So where is our sin blotted out? Because in his mind, this is not how he's relating to us. So where can we go where our fear no longer makes decisions for us? <laughs> Hebrews 8.10, I want to unpack the rest of that passage around that, those beautiful words. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people and they shall not 
teach each one of his neighbor and each one of his brothers saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their sin and I will remember their sins no more. God changes our heart and he puts his spirit into us and he writes the new law on our hearts and in our minds. So love is the new law. And now we can effectively engage the culture from this lens. So let me take the last five minutes to just paint you a picture. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 9. Here is Paul helping us figure this out of how, how do we love our neighbor? Okay, now that we know what's compromising it, our, our fear of punishment. If I can deal with that before the Lord and really believe that he has blotted out my sin totally, then now I'm, I'm really free. And here's how Paul says it. It's very confusing. Okay, just ride the wave for a minute. It's super confusing. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not my, being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. Whew. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. I want you to see three things that he's saying right here to maybe give us some clarity because this is how we coexist with the culture. This is how we live the culture here and now. Number one, <laughs> well, number one, number six on your notes, actually, I'm looking now. This is, your, this is the blank on your, on your notes. We effectively engage the culture for Jesus when we use our Christian freedom to become a slave to all. So we are, in the name of love, using our freedom to serve and be enslaved in a sense. Remember that word can be interchangeable in the Greek text to everyone else. Martin Luther said it this way, a Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all subject to none. A Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant subject to all. Christians are the freest people on the planet. Did you know that? If you are a Christian, you are the freest person on the planet. You are free from God's wrath. You are free from guilt. You are free from shame. You are free from fear. And this ought to motivate you to then out of, out of that joy and that freedom, we then are obedient. But where we miss it, where we miss it and what the culture teaches us is we've got to do something to earn that freedom. We've got to do something to be worthy of that love. Because contrary to culture's opinion that, you know, you're worthy, you're good, you're great, we're actually not. We're not great. We're, we're really not worthy. We're only made worthy through the freedom that we have in Christ. And that sets me up fire. And I want everyone to know that. And so I obey Christ. I read my Bible because I'm free. I don't read my Bible to get free. You know what I'm saying? You see the difference? I enter into someone's life and know them and love them because I'm free. 
not because I have to do that because somebody told me. I get to do that. And that's what Paul is saying here. You've got to know that you are so free. Number one, that you are not under the Old Testament ceremonial law. That's what he's saying. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law. So what he's saying is, if he's in the house, specifically in this context, he's actually talking about food and eating. And he's saying, if I'm in the home of a Jewish person and they don't want to eat pork or catfish, I'm not going to. I'm not going because I become as they are to show them my freedom. I can morph and evolve into whatever's going to love you and serve you. I'm not, but, but in and of himself, he's saying, I'm not bound by that ceremonial law. We're not bound by dietary separation laws, all the 600 plus that we see in the Old Testament. So guess what? You are free. You are free to go into the bar. You are free to go into, I don't know, you're free to go into a home of um, a Republican or Democrat. <laughs> You can eat meat or you can be a vegetarian. You can hang out with a heterosexual or a homosexual. You can have coffee with a Muslim, visit the home of a drunk or an adulterer or a gossip or a liar. You have absolute freedom to coexist. However, and, he, and, and Paul goes on to say, we're not without law. We are not without the moral law of God. We are, in fact, under the law of Christ. So what is the moral law that we follow? Is it the Ten Commandments? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is really... Com it's complicated, but it's not, okay? Because we, we, as humans, we want, like, give us the rules. Like, okay, so tell us what we're supposed to do. Are we supposed to just follow the Ten Commandments? Like, is that a good line? Well, sure. But, but <laughs> so is all the other stuff in the New Testament. I mean, Jesus repeats the, old, the, the, uh, the Ten Commandments, for good measure maybe, but he puts more weight in him. He, do, he doesn't say, no, you can't just murder. Now I don't want you to hate anybody, you see? Like he gives a deeper, deeper meaning to what law is. It's motivated from love. So it's not just enough to not murder I also don't want you to hate or seek vengeance. But your sweet spot for what is the law that we all as Christians are under is always going to be Galatians. It's a sweet spot. Galatians 5 and 6. I'll read you a couple of passages as we wrap up. Galatians 6, 2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Galatians 5.14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Galatians 5.18, I did not put the chapter, I just have 18, but it's somewhere in Galatians. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Look, the Old Testament written law, think of it like a PET scan. So when I was diagnosed, I had to go in all the time and get a PET scan because I needed to be diagnosed for my problem. But now that I'm healed, I don't go in for PET scans anymore. So the law 
of, of if you want to use right and wrong, I don't like those words, but if you want to use right and wrong, if that helps you, it's more of a diagnostic. But then as you trust the Lord and you are set free and you love not out of fear of punishment, but out of a desire, like a des- I want to obey. I want to be disciplined. I, I want to know where I am prideful and in my sin. So as I correct that, as I see that, and as I see that as good, I don't need the diagnostic as much. Does that make sense? Okay, I'll end on this, I promise. I want you to know as we go forward that I want you to ask the Lord to help you effectively engage the culture as we learn about our culture. And I'm going to give you practical tools moving forward how to do that. But you've got three right here that Paul's giving us. Not a Jew, but as a Jew. A Jew. So how do you test that you're going too far? You're not, you're not a drunkard. Maybe you're as <laughs> drunkard by having a glass of wine with them. Are you becoming more worldly-minded than they are becoming spiritually-minded? That's a check for you. Are you becoming more worldly-minded than they are becoming more spiritually-minded? Secondly, he uses all his means, right? I've become all things to all people by all the ways that I've got. So you use the means at your disposal. That's what that means. You overcome any unnecessary or alienating differences that cut you off from unbelievers. So if you need to have a meal with them, you have it. If you need to dress like them to, a, to an extent, you dress like them. For, and what I mean by that is we all dress like Americans. None of us are, we're, we're with the times, so to speak. We learn about sports, we learn about their politics, we do business with them. It's very practical. You use your means to know them, your opportunities, your abilities, and your desires. And then finally, we want to keep watch on the fruit. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share in the blessings with them. So, is your passion, that's what you got to watch your fruit. Is your passion for, for relationship, for deep church community, is it growing or is it becoming more guarded? Are you being creative in how you love people or are you being in control? Are you a spectator to the fruitfulness of others? Or are you actually invested? Like, do you just come to church on Sunday mornings and leave? Then you're just spectating everybody else's fruit. Are you showing up to serve in the nursery? Okay, that takes sacrifice. (laughs) Are you asking someone, where can I help? What can I do? Are you coming to church because you need something or are you coming to church because you want to give something back? See, that's the fruit. That's what you got to be aware of. Okay, I'm going to wrap this up. Did I say that like three times? I'm going to wrap this up. Okay, this kind of love. The law of love will not allow us to sit with indifference or in action. This love will compel us to confront the most difficult issues of our culture, and that's what we're about to do. We're, we need to provide for the poor, value the unborn, 
care for orphans and widows, rescue people from slavery, both physical and internal and mental, defend marriage, war against sexual immorality, love our neighbors as ourselves, provide for refugees, practice faith, regardless of the risk to our reputation, and go to all the nations to proclaim the good news of the gospel, that we are free, free from punishment. And because he loves us that much, we are free from our own pride, able to be perfected in the love of Christ. Father, will you perfect us? Will you humble our hearts, speak to our hearts, Help us see the way that you love so that we can see others the way that you do, how much you love them. We ask it all in your beautiful and perfect name. Amen.